something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Since 2004, 1,300 towns across America have lost local newspaper coverage. David Rattray wages a weekly fight against that trend as the tireless editor of his hometown paper, The Star. He puts out the fishing report, as his predecessors have done for a 100 years, He holds the town board accountable. There are little league scores and a lively police blotter. But Rattray has a unique challenge because the star is the East Hampton star. And it has to cover the very different town that forms for three months a year when its coverage area triples in population and becomes the center of an elite New York social universe. It's an editorial conundrum not faced by Rattray's grandfather. My family was in a position in the 1930s to buy the East Hampton Star. Um, It was not terribly expensive. It was the Depression. But nonetheless, we and other, quote-unquote, leading families of East Hampton— oh, by the way, I'm 13th generation, to sort of set the context. You know, in looking at the history of the paper, the first thing I thought was, what do all of this line of rat trays have in common? Your grandfather, your father and mother, Mm -hmm. and now you. What, what, What does that line have in common? What all five of us uh, across three generations have is this very, very strong attachment to place, a sense of place and a sense of wanting to preserve, defend, and understand it, Uh, which is interesting because my mother was a nice Jewish girl from Bayonne, New Jersey. My grandfather was uh, a Scottish immigrant by way of San Francisco, but we all had that sense that we loved East Hampton, loved the South Fork, and wanted to keep it that way. When I first came out here as a renter in 82, uh, your mother was in charge, I mm-hmm. think. And then you had sold an equity stake in the company to in the, in the paper to somebody else? That's right. It became a little bit of a power struggle. Um, this is um, about the year 2000. I came back to uh, take over the paper. My mother said she was tired and 
would I do it? And she'd throw in a house, basically. <laughs> she threw in a house. No, no. Really, really. Yeah, and my girlfriend and I at the time um, wanted to get out of New York City. We wanted to have a dog, and we didn't want to subject a dog to New York. And so everything lined up. So Arthur Carter was the, the partner, and he was fairly backseat partner f- for the star for many years. But the moment when I came back and sought to assume the editorship was when he could exert a little bit of pressure. Um, you know, it was a very strange agreement. It, he and my mother were at 50-50, and I mean, that's a recipe in a small business for right. nothing but war. Right. And, uh, you know, so then there's his lawyers involved, and eventually things are settled, and, and we are now um, 100% owners of the star um, with the help of local banks. When you say you were in the city, yeah, you grew up out here. Mm-hmm. You went to Dartmouth. You were studying. You were going to be a museum designer. One could argue you're still a museum designer <laughs> in the newspaper business. But how long were you in the city? I was there for most of the '90s. Moved out here in 1998. And did you really not want to live in New York anymore? And you didn't. I, I really did hit the wall. I mean, I realized I was spending all of my week thinking about getting out here, <laughs> looking out of my window, you know, sort of pining for the. This was park. home. Yeah. It this really was, was, yeah. What do you remember most about your childhood out here? There certainly was a sense of freedom. There there really weren't houses much in the woods. So the woods were these open places where, you know, we would entertain ourselves during breaks in high school by, you know, taking my 1970 Dodge Dart on the horse trails. And, right. you, you know, were just... cage-free children. <laughs> that was before, of course, the tick epidemic, when you actually could go outside. <laughs> so there was a sense of... You know, you could sort of go anywhere. The the Maidstone Club, which is famously sort of exclusive, didn't really care that we would fish off the golf dock and that sort of thing. You try that now and they probably have you tased if you're lucky. So childhood here was, I think we were bored out of our minds, but at least we had some open space in which to express that boredom in mostly constructive ways. Did you think you got a good education at East Hampton High School back then? Yeah, I think I did. I wasn't prepared for college-level volume of work, but, you know, it, it was a good high school then. It's a good high school now. It was non-diverse. I think we had one Latino family, the Sanabrias. Um, Not now, like that now. Right. Now it's about 50% Latino. I loved it, and I loved knowing the kids from Montauk. It seemed like half my graduating class ended up being East Hampton Town cops. It, you know, it's it's kind of a you know, despite all of the glitz of the Hamptons and all of that, there is a small town quality that's right. kind of endearing. I mean, the village chief of police recently retired. He and I had a fist fight in seventh grade, and I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I clocked him in the head. And what I, all I remember is his head was really hard. Comes, comes in handy yeah. in his line of work now. And your car's been getting ticketed ever since, right? Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Now, the, the, this area also, I mean, I'll get off this eventually, but this community, I mean, for you and your staff, you must get like whiplash come Labor Day weekend in the distinction between what you're doing in those three months and the rest of the year. Describe what that's like, what you're reporting on for one season, and then what's it like the rest of the year for you? What's really interesting, one of the weirdest things about the difference between the season is you almost can't even put your finger on what it is that changes, that why the, why the level goes from zero to 10 overnight. And it's certainly the volume of, of people, um, you know, the, the volume of police news and the creativity of the perpetrators and that sort of thing. Um, 
Uh, everything gets more dangerous. Everything here. gets more dangerous here. But there's also this quality of um, friction, I think, that local people get more heated up in July, metaphorically, than they do in February about whatever the neighborhood conflict is, the thing that's bothering them. Um, and so, th- so that sense of um, calamity increases so that even if it's the same people between February and July, the anxiety and the, the, the feeling like this really, really matters and, and that the community is going to hell in a handbasket is very palpable in the summer. Everything is turned up. My description of it is that people come out here to have a particular experience. Mm. And if they don't have that experience when they're here, they get really angry. Mm -hmm. They get a house, whether they have a really, really fancy house on Lily Pond Lane and it's private, or they get a share with a bunch of friends, and they're going to find romance, and they're going to drink just the perfect cocktail and have the perfect steak, and they're going to be out of that pool at four in the morning and pass out and sleep till noon and wake up and have bagels at Goldberg or whatever. There's like a whole thing they have lined up. And if it doesn't happen in those two weeks or however many weeks they have their share out here— they're yeah. very pissed off. I think that's right. There's a frantic quality to it. <laughs> you know, one of the things, it's so funny, it manifests itself a lot with driving. Of course, I'm sure you know. You, you know, there's that off-season driving and there's on-season driving. And you, there's that level of driving can actually be relaxing in, in October. Um, and and you can get a sandwich without, you Let's know. Let's go to Montauk. <laughs> yeah, heaven forbid. Right, Southampton. Okay, forget and, it. Well, it's a big deal. You know, like I have friends in Sag Harbor. I don't see. I live yeah. in Amagansett. Um, yeah. You know, I don't see them until October. And, and, you know, and I'm willing to drive to Sag Harbor. The Sag Harbor people won't drive to Amagansett. There's a whole thing. But it, but it <laughs> also feels like time expands and contracts. For, like I can't – I used to do this. I used to come out for the weekend and, and pack it all into two days. And now – I, I can't even conceive of doing that. It seems impossible to, to operate at that speed. But I think you're absolutely right. There's a quality of perfection that didn't exist when I was a kid and even a, a young person here. The, the quality of having the perfect weekend, the perfect margarita, the perfect lobster bake or something like that. Um, so if there's a shift too, I think there's one of tone and, and, and expectation among people here. I mean, I worked for as a caterer for a while, and, you know, we're pretty loosey-goosey, you know, <laughs> lobsters and things like that. And, I, I, you know, I, we'd show up in jeans or whatever. That just wouldn't cut it today. You know, yeah. you have to sort of look a certain way. And tell you what, too, though, in a weird way, Alec, it's cheaper to get a piece of the Hamptons now than it used to be. Hmm. So, right, because you used to rent for a whole season, and mm-hmm. that would be $30,000 or whatever it was. Well, now, with Airbnb and, and home sharing like that, basically anybody with a credit card and a few hundred bucks can scratch together a tiny little piece of the uh, East Hampton experience. So there's this whole other set. And one of the things they do or is, is kind of pack it in. So if, if you're an airbnb and you're here for three nights with your family and your uncle and your aunt— you're going to play tennis, swim, go to lunch for lunch, and you're going to rip out to Montauk to see the boat. So there's this this um, increased amplitude, I think, of activity. So, you know, so there's a, uh, could, I hate to say it, maybe a little bit more of a democratic or egalitarian quality to summer in East Hampton. When you were asked by your mother mm. uh, to come, 98, yeah. was there a period of a year or two where you sat there and said, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. My 
when I first got back at the newspaper, I started doing sort of menial stuff and then uh, was assigned to cover the local zoning board. And, you know, I remember distinctly making a, a mistake, which is not terribly important now, but it was about a, a, a ferry. There had been a giant fight in Montauk, whether or not there'd be a passenger ferry to Block Island. Was it the high-speed ferry? Yeah. And so there was this critical juncture of how many cars were going to be parked in the, the ferry parking lot, which had to, the whole thing was based on how many cars, was how many people, and so on. And I had no idea that this had been a 10-year fight over this parking lot. And I wrote a little story about it, and I got it 100% wrong because it was the the final chapter, the denouement of, of this epic struggle over the future of Montauk. And, and that was a moment of like, yeah, what the hell is going on here? This minutia that I don't understand. I've been away for 10 years, just coming out as a weekender. Um, but that's kind of the whole community journalism thing. It, it's the coverage of the, the incremental steps. And, you know, eventually I began to amass enough familiarity with what was going on to make sense of things that might to the outside seem insignificant, number of cars in a parking lot, which actually was the... You know, the finish of right. this apocalypse. The define the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you, when, when you took the job in 98, was there a bit of a chasm between what you thought the job was and what you eventually found out it was? Yeah, there really was. I don't think I appreciated how much the newspaper mattered to the community and how mad people would get if their item didn't get in. That's a big deal. And I think that was a lesson to, to realize. I give an example. There's a, you know, so a guy had collected some sort of dolls. From, there's this life work collecting these dolls. And uh, he was going to have like a one-day show at the library. This goes back to years. And we didn't get it in the paper. And the guy came in and he was outraged. And that was a lesson to me. Like mm. this guy, he spent 20 years collecting these dolls. And this is his moment. He's going to talk about the dolls at the library. Yeah, he wanted you to care. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. And and that was a lesson that I don't think, you know, I was working in documentaries and museums and all this stuff in New York, sort of bouncing from one subject to another. And I, I don't think I understood the the closeness and humanity of people's interests and how that's reflected in, in, in local media. That was a big lesson. It, over the arc of the last 20 plus years that you've been doing the, the job there, we're in the situation we're in now with the American political landscape, and part of that has been this evolution of news and media. What are the, the tropes, what are the rules of journalism that have affected that field over the last 20 years that affect you as well? Um, I think audiences are so fractured into various silos that are not necessarily going to cross over. Any sized media organization has to figure out how to bring the brand to the consumers where they live, whether it's digitally or on print. Um, you know, we had this unbelievable monopoly newspapers for two or three hundred years. I mean, the United States, I don't know, middle of the 18th century starts publishing newspapers. We had no competition. Television and radio didn't really do what print could do. We don't anymore at the scale of these Tampa stars. And so we find ourselves competing with all of these different channels, basically, competing for people's time, competing for their news consumption, and trying to figure out, you know, how to reach them and what they need. And, and that's an interesting puzzle. And that's, I'd say, about the last decade or so that's really come to the fore where, where we realized we're not the only game in town anymore, that we have to 
compete. It's more than even compete. It's like we we could sort of do whatever we wanted when, when at a certain point. Now we have to understand the news consumer more and really hand deliver, walk it to them what what we our best guess is that they need. And are you you're up in the morning and what is it for you? Watch, listen, read what? Uh, New York Times online, Washington Post online. You know, we have home delivery of the Times, so it doesn't show up till I leave for work. So, so I am reading digitally. Uh, Twitter is important, I think. You know, you get a feel for what's what's going on at the Atlantic or somewhere like that. And then, you know, the, there's a lot of sort of academics who post things, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting because well, it's just back to the, this this question of a, a fractured media. You need, you know, even editors need editors and curators now to figure out and help. Who's yours? Uh, Maggie Haberman at the Times. Anything she recommends, I'm going to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a wonderful historian of contemporary fitness culture, you know, writing about aerobics and things like that. What as, is her name? Uh, Natalie Petruzella. And she's a, a historian. I think she's at City College or somewhere. And she will post a link to some wonderful piece about sort of contemporary life and history. And, you know, that's a, one of the wonderful things about the age we're living in is, is we are – we certainly have the ability to come into contact with so much more than we used to. Oh, God. And Instantly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, who thought I'd be interested in someone who wrote about aerobics culture and, and you know, the rise of, you know, yeah. fitness culture in the 80s? That's kind of interesting. Not that I ever did it, mind you. No TV news. No, I no TV on an, on a screen on mute in the offices of the East Hampton Star. No, we have a television. It's never on. <laughs> <laughs> Not kidding. In fact, I think it's one of those old-fashioned ones, the glass, you know, CRT tubes. With a tube. Yeah. yeah, however that works. Yeah. Um, we get the Post and the Daily News and Newsday hard copy in the office, and uh, it's always a pleasure. And, and we have a, a Jack Graves, who is our sports writer, who's been with us since 1968. Know. Know, uh, part of his daily ritual is to sit in the front office and read the Post. It's you know, you can find got it. Got a there. good sports page, the post. <laughs> it does. I feel that's as far as I'm going to go. But you got a good sports page. Can't <laughs> lie about that. You know, headlines. Now, do you get a lot of pressure from people politically? Or you must get some. Well, it's wonderful. I mean, I think the Democrats think that I'm some sort of lout, and the Republicans think I'm some sort of Democratic stooge. It's a cliche in the business. If both sides are pissed off at you, you're doing something right. Um, but it's interesting what you talk about, like outright political hostility or blocking a thing. You know. It, you run into these folks in the supermarket here. You know, I know the chairman of both political parties fairly well. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I've always found, like, the the side that doesn't agree with you, at least locally, is generally the more polite mm-hmm. um, and, 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 frankly, easier to talk to. Um, you know, we're a paper with, with definite liberal leanings, but mm. not— um, Crazy. I, people might say I'm completely crazy. Editor of the East Hampton Star, David Rattray. Janice Min got her start as a beat reporter at a different small-town newspaper. She ended up running Us Weekly and changing celebrity reporting forever. You know, the first year that I started Us Weekly, I think that was the first year American Idol came on air. And so it was this whole explosion of reality TV. So this intimacy that, you know, that's when people started to call celebrities on their first name basis, like Brittany, Justin, Jessica, you know, and the whole thing was like some like giant cotton candy machine. The rest of my conversation with Janice Min 
is in our archive at heresthething.org. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. David Rattray is the editor and, with his mother, the owner of the East Hampton Star. Most debates playing out on his pages revolve around who can build what and where. 
It might take a very, very strong anti-development stance. I, you know, basically, I think we just need to stop and we're past. I agree with you on that part. Well, now, 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 speak about that yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. Describe what you think happened development-wise, because you go other places like the Vineyard and the Cape, and you go to Nantucket, and it's completed. It's, the speculative real estate is not going to change. They won't allow that. What happened out here in your lifetime? Well, there's been successive waves that we, you know, I think each time the wave hits, we think, well, it just couldn't get any worse. It couldn't get more more developed. Um, there was a big push in the 80s, people coming out here and beginning to settle in the woods, driven by people who wanted to be here. Speculative money began to roll in sort of in the next wave. So there's a, a 90s boom. And then there's a 2000 boom, which got really intense. And, and you know, you begin to see a lot of um, anonymous partnerships coming in. I mean, for example, Paul Manafort was spending Ukrainian blood money to build himself a palace in Watermill. Um, there was an internationalization of the money flowing into real estate here that I think has really caused a break architecturally and socially between what came before and kind of where we are now. And I know that sounds dark and dire, um, but if you could, if you can kind of like two groups, there's the people who wanted to be here because they loved it, people like you, and and then there were people for whom it represented something else, or was an, was just part of an investment portfolio, or or a place to, you know, uh, burn ill-gotten gains and and launder cash um, into American dollars. Um, so so there is a quality I think now of unfamiliarity. Um, what are you suggesting might be done? I really think there should be a no net growth strategy so that if the town okays an expansion of a restaurant, for example, that's offset in some other way. There's there's a great deal of, of public money here now for property acquisition. So it's not an impossible idea to, to think that you could do that. I, I why do you think the why do you why do you think the appropriation of that money's been so slow? The, these boards, these last few, they're not spending hardly any of that CPF money. Why? That's a good question. I think there's certainly been a little bit of pushback, and there's a strange myth that um, taking land off the out, out of the market, if you will, if, if an acre is taken out of the market in Amagansett, suddenly that means we're not going to have affordable housing in Amagansett, which is, of course, insane because an acre in Amagansett would set you back, you know, a million dollars or something like that. <laughs> um, so there is this sort of political, local rumbling that land preservation is good, but you don't want to go too far. Right. It's causing as many problems as it solves. Well, you think about it. I mean, you know, other than real estate, probably the other big industry is really the sort of landscape industrial complex, which is... Building. Building and... Renovating. Renovating and planting, uh, you know, arborvitae so you don't see your neighbors. Um, <laughs> so it does kind of make sense that, that a zero-growth... Um, is a threat. Is, is a real threat. Uh, but... You know, there's been an extraordinary effort at land preservation here. Um, the east end of Long Island is surrounded by fertile uh, marine environments that have been protected. Um, so you can still get away from, you know— The madding crowd. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that still endures, and that's a testament to really— there's, There was really a period when I was growing up here when— 
there's folks with a lot of foresight decided we are going to save the woodlands, we're going to save the bays, we're going to stop the the mega development. Um, you know, and I, I mean, there's still plenty of pressure. Montauk in particular mm-hmm. is, is coming under just extraordinary, um, both sort of corporate and ego-driven development. But there's still wonderful places so you can get away. Um, back roads that are essentially back roads still. I, I don't think it should be allowed to get much more crowded here. Right. Um, and it could. There's plenty of redevelopment that could happen. There's still vacant land. Downzoning. Sure. They were like, well, you know, we'll just put the town water in. Then we can downzone from five acres to two acres and build a hell of a lot more houses out here and not have to worry about septic. I think there was a moment where that probably was true, that there was a sense that we can run utilities and, and get greater development. And suburbanize. There are still a lot of very small lots here. I think that the question of suburbanization is interesting because the the property values are so high. It's really a question of who is building now and for what reason. And it's it seems like a lot of what goes on here is being built for churn and for turnover. And so a density is not quite as attractive as it might have been once because you want to have houses that look a certain way so they've got that curb appeal for for resale. I, it's hard to know how much of the real estate industry here really is speculative still, but I think it's, you know, sake of argument, 25% or 30%. You know, does public water fit into that? I think so. It is interesting. You, you go to a place like Bolinas in, in uh, Marin County, and the way Bolinas has put the clamps on development is by limiting the number of water hookups, which you know, both makes them very valuable, but it, but it's interesting. Like a taxi medallion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Oh, well, I mean, we've hit saturation. I don't know if you tried to use your cell phone today, but, you, you know, essentially yeah. you can't make a cell phone call. In, in more areas than I'm used to. Right. You know, and then the internet's overloaded. I, I, I can only not make a phone call when I drove past Perlman's property. <laughs> right. That was it. Yeah. Now, now I can't make a phone call many places. Well, that's right. That's right. Of course, there was rumors that someone on Newtown Lane in East Hampton had a cell phone jammer, but that was never, uh, you know. I'm relying on you for the facts. <laughs> Just the now, facts. Now, right. Now, in the time we have left, i got two more questions for you. One is tell me about the um, slaveholder project you've been working on. The origins of that and where is it at now? So this is really interesting. About two years ago, we started, really, I started asking the question, um, you know, what What was slave holding like in East Hampton? I knew about two enslaved persons out of all of East Hampton history that, you know, were, were here. And what was surprising was the church records essentially listed something on the order of 300, 330 people who may well have been enslaved. So from that starting point, we've been trying to use census records and, and primary source documents of all sorts to make a list of every single enslaved person who ever lived in the town of East Hampton. And at this point, we're up to over 250 people. But what's interesting about that is what's emerging is a much more complicated picture of the American origin, frankly. Um, because the argument has always been that sort of America came out of the colonies, that these townships became colonies, you know, became sort of unified colonies, became states. You have the revolution, the, you know, Declaration of Independence, Constitution, of the United States. So the concept really, the way we've learned history is that these white settlers built America. But the truth is that 
enslaved Africans worked side by side, and the, the records are really everywhere. Where, for example? Well, the East Hampton Library, for example, has a wonderful collection, as do many communities of old ledger books. So one of our greatest sources is uh, several generations of shoemakers' account books, and they would write something in there, like Cato, who belonged to Mr. Mulford got a pair of shoes on such and such a date, and they would identify him as a Negro. Um, they were scrupulous about keeping records. There wasn't really a lot of cash in those days, so it was an economy based on exchange. It wasn't barter yeah. per se. I gave you a pair of shoes, and so you're going to work for me for half a day or something right. like that. Yeah. So, But that's all written down. And so these records begin to get a picture that really anybody of means in the colonial period here, and we're talking from 1650 um, onward, uh, had at least one or two enslaved persons in, the, in their homes. What about you made you want to engage in this? In, in part, it's picking up something in the zeitgeist, um, violence against black men. And early on in the project, I was talking to a historian in Cambridge, Mass., and he got choked up, and he said that he could draw a direct line from the omission of enslaved Africans from America's sense of self to violence against black men today. You know, if you think the pilgrims made America, <laughs> the, the Africans sort of don't fit into that myth. And, you know, maybe it's easier to shoot them in the back. Because I think most Americans still think of slavery as a southern institution. They think, or maybe they think of roots or they think of cotton. Maybe if they know a little more, they think about, say, rice in the Carolinas. But the fact is that the coastal New England economy was based on slavery, not just in the labor here, but what we're beginning to understand is places like Shelter Island and East Hampton and Gardner's Island were deeply involved in provisioning uh, Caribbean slave plantations where they grew sugar. Sugar was the big Atlantic uh, uh, you know, economic driver of the time, and East Hampton was playing a big role in that. And I'll give you one example, not to belabor the point. 1715, the, the East Hampton town fathers get together and commission a church turns out to be the largest and most expensive church on Long Island. You sort of pause for a second. You think, well, wait a minute. Why, why do these hardscrabble farmer fishermen that we've been told settled eastern Long Island, what are they doing building this, you know, Presbyterian palace? Crystal Cathedral. Right. So what's the point? Where's this money coming from? And then you have to ask, so, so what they're doing essentially, um, I, what our hypothesis is, is provisioning uh, places like Barbados and Antigua and Haiti, where uh, all land was really given over to sugar production. It was not a good place to grow cattle. I'll give you another example. In, I think it's 1686, there are 3,200 head of cattle in Montauk. Montauk was just a giant cattle ranch. But there are only about 200 you know, people living in East Hampton. What do 200 people need 3,200 heads of cattle <laughs> Where's for? Where's all that beef going? Right. You know, Boston's got its own cattle. New York's got its own cattle. Hartford's got its own cattle. So, so you know... It, it is likely, we haven't found all of the records yet to, to really support the hypothesis, but it's very likely that the agricultural production and, and other household industries here were part of provisioning this vast slave-driven economy in the Caribbean. And that's causing us on the project to really begin to rethink what East Hampton and coastal New England is all about. And we think by by trying to expand this inventory of slavery— among other communities on Long Island and, and into southern New England, we may be able to move the American origin myth. I figure, what the heck? We you know, aim high. So that's really what we're trying to do. 
And your student, uh, which is actually interesting, he's a lot of high school students to to do the research. They have sharp eyes and good memories, and they will read. You know, if the if you pitch it to them right, they will read a, a, an 18th century shoemaker's logbook and find it fascinating. What do you think about the subject of reparations as it's being discussed now? Coats and people like that. Boy, I'll tell you something. Um, I never really thought much about slave owning in my own family, and one day I was. It sort of dawned on me that I ought to trace a couple of my lines and see. And I traced my great-grandmother's family, the Huntings, back to Reverend Nathaniel Hunting. And he had several enslaved people in his house, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I realized, oh, crap, I'm part of this story, too. The South had its sort of day of reckoning for slavery. It lost the Civil War. They burned Atlanta. You know, so the South kind of paid. The North never did. North never really owned up. Owned up. It never. It was never taken away. So, to some tiny extent, the social position or wealth or relative comfort that my family enjoys here today is derived from the labor of enslaved people here at the end of the seventeenth and eighteenth century. So, what do you think about reparations? Hell yeah! And here's the other thing about reparations: reparations, in my mind, are at least as much for the giver as the receiver. In fact, it's probably more important to have the conversation about reparations so that we as a country understand our origins. Whatever amount of money is almost irrelevant. The point is, is it's really the conversation about reparations that forces communities like East Hampton or Stonington, Connecticut or Boston to to acknowledge and understand its slave-owning past, and particularly for the Northeast to recognize that the wealth that it continues to enjoy today is based in some part on enslaved labor. My father was someone who watched his own father's casual kind of racism. Mm. You know, Jesus Christ, these colored fellas sitting out there drinking all day on that sofa. Jesus Christ, that just rubs me the wrong way. And my father would later say to me that my grandfather would then go in his apartment and sit on a (laughs) sofa and drink beer all day and smoke cigarettes and watch the races. And he said the only difference between my father and those guys was a rent-controlled lease in an apartment. (laughs) Otherwise, they were exactly the same. I'm someone who reads the news now as I'm older. I'm 61 years old, and I'll listen to, like, the BBC News Hour. The announcer will come on and say, you know, the the bodies stacked eight high on the road to Yemen. And I think to myself, what the hell can I do about this right Mm. now? Like, what can Mm. I do? Mm. And therefore, the journalistic experience that I like in terms of not only seeking truth, but understanding my place in a community that I can have some effect on, is always Thursdays reading the East Hampton Star. (laughs) I sit with my East Hampton Star on Thursday afternoon, I make everybody go away, and I read the police blotter and the obituary page, and I read the obituaries word for word, Mm -hmm. and I go through the whole thing, the little village columns, and Isabel Carmichael, and all this stuff, and the restaurant reviews, and I read the whole thing. And, And what are land sales, one-third of an acre off of Springs Fireplace. Well, I say, what are they getting for a third of an acre up in Springs these days? And I need to know these things, and I need to read that as much as I need to read The Post or The Wall Street Journal. I think it's universal. I think people want to know about the communities they live in. Bingo. Bingo. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure. David Rattray of the East Hampton Star, which he publishes on a strip of coastline his family has fished and farmed and preached to 
for almost 400 years. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.